On R2C2, CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco guide listeners through everything going on in the MLB, NBA, and NFL. They also talk to friends, athletes, and celebrities about the world of sports and much more. Check out R2C2 with CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. Take a shot at betting the NBA with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub, filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit rg-help.com. Coming up on New York, New York, the Mets sweep the Arizona Diamondbacks. They've won five in a row, but rats, raccoons, and an injury to Jacob DeGrom kind of stole the show. The Knicks had their biggest win of the year Sunday against the Clippers. Derrick Rose turning back the clock. I'm all sorts of fired up. And the Yankees had their best homestand of the year. So we got a lot going on. We have the great Iron Eagle, who is one of the premier voices in all sports, the voice of the Brooklyn Nets. He's going to join us. And voicemails. You got to get in touch with the show. Here's how you do it. 917-382-1151. In case you were trying to figure that out. All that and more. New York, New York, presented by our friends over at FanDuel Sportsbook. It's coming up next. All righty, let's roll, baby. Welcome in. It is episode 16. Super fired up for New York, New York. We are truly JJ Chomsky-Stremsky. We're right here on the Ringer Podcast Network and... I was oh so tempted to throw in an emergency pod on Friday night when Fugazi rats and raccoons are being brought up with Jeff McNeil and Francisco Lindor and all sorts of shenanigans going on within the New York Mets. And in many ways, this weekend from a Mets standpoint has been completely overshadowed by rats and raccoons and an injury to Jacob DeGrom. Mets are starting to play some really good baseball. They sweep the Arizona Diamondbacks. Their bullpen has been absolutely lights out. They've now won five games in a row. They're three games over the 500 mark. The Mets are playing some quality baseball, even though they have not exactly distinguished themselves swinging the bats yet. Friday night, though, I got no problem when I got two of my guys over the course of 162 games. Letting off a little steam. And clearly that went down in the dugout tunnel between Jeff McNeil and Francisco Endor. You could try to spin it, sell it, whichever way you'd like. They had some words. There might have been a fist thrown for all I know. That can happen over 162. Clearly, it has brought out better play for both guys since. Sometimes you just got to air it out, baby. You got to let it out. If you've been on a team, you understand that dynamic. 
You're not going to be lovey-dovey with every single guy. Sometimes you're going to have a major disagreement. I'm not advocating blood sport. I'm not advocating that Jeff McNeil or Francisco Endor go leave a shiner on somebody's face. But we've seen it, and I've seen it on winning teams. Sometimes that element is needed. The fagazi nonsense after the game that they were reacting to a rat or a raccoon or a raccoon, as Francisco Endor tried to say on Saturday. Guys, I'll save you the trouble. Nobody is believing that alibi. We all know that's a bunch of bullshit. Let's call it like it is. It's an absolute bunch of bullshit. Who cares? All's good moving forward. This is going to get better play out of Francisco Indoor because whatever happened, next to bat, he had a game-tying home run. McNeil on Saturday hit a big home run to help you go and win a game. As long as things are fine down the road, and I get the sense that they are, I mean, you have Lindor coming into McNeil's Zoom conference. He's kissing him. He's hugging him. He's doing whatever. The drama was all about this made-up alibi. Sometimes you could just own it. You don't have to say there was a fight, but we're keeping it within closed doors. We're not commenting on it. I mean, you're going to get made fun of with these fake stories. That's, I think, the talk of social media going into Saturday's game. And Even the general manager came out and said, yeah, we want our guys to be accountable because we know that's what the fan base demands. Let you play on the field do the talking. And I think bygones can be bygones here in this situation. I am not worried in the least about long-term ramifications with Lindor and McNeil sharing a middle infield together. I'm not. Sometimes this happens on a baseball team. That overshadowed what was probably one of the best Met wins in a year. Sunday, the Mets go and win a game. It's not going to be the story. What's going to be the story now is Jacob DeGrom, who, remember, was scratched earlier in the week because of this lat issue. He's out on Friday at shortstop trying to make leaping catches, trying to do this, trying to do that. And he's humming for the first four innings of this game to the point where I wondered if he actually had legitimate no-hit stuff against the Arizona Diamondbacks. But you could see it in DeGrom's body language and in his demeanor as he was trying to work through the top half of the fifth inning, that something was clearly off and that something was clearly not right. I'd like for the Mets, from a medical standpoint, to have a better understanding of their guys. Why is Jacob DeGrom making this start? Or why is he out shagging infield outfield if something is up? Not a good look. You hope it's not severe. You hope it's not significant. Put him on the IL. Listen, if you don't have to ground for two weeks, the Mets can get by. But if the Mets are going to do anything of real significance this year, that means win a division title, get to a World Series, win a World Series. You need to ground at his very best. So you cannot let this become, you know, some sort of long-term, overarching, total nightmare. You got to nip it in the butt now. So I would certainly err on the side of caution moving forward with Jake. Great weekend for the Mets. And unfortunately, Monday at your virtual water coolers, I can't say water coolers now because nobody experiences 
legitimate water coolers these days. And I know plenty of people are going into work, but if your water cooler is available, God bless. I haven't seen one of those bad boys in a long, long time. But those mid elements are not five in a row and three straight against the Arizona Diamondbacks. It's rats, raccoons, and DeGrom being hurt. That's what's going on in MetLife. And it made for quite a chaotic weekend. Entertaining weekend, winning weekend, but a chaotic weekend nonetheless. So you got all that going on with the Mets. And oh, by the way, the New York Knickerbockers won their biggest game of the season Sunday. And I know they've had some good wins this year. They beat Utah in the Austin Rivers game. They had a dominant win over Milwaukee. Uh, The win against John Morant in comfort behind fashion on a Friday night was a terrific, terrific win. This, to me, and the Atlanta game was great and it was fun, but Trey Young got hurt. This was their win of the year. At the Los Angeles Clippers, bonafide championship contender, Kawhi Leonard is playing, Paul George is playing, the Clippers obviously are playing for positioning and seating as are the New York Knicks. And the Knicks go and win this game convincingly after a slow start in the second quarter, first and second quarter for that matter. That's big boy shit right there. This is a big boy type of win for Tom Thibodeau and the New York Knicks. And it wasn't one of those games where it was just vintage Julius Randle for four quarters and that's how you found a way to win. Not in the least. This game to me, Why the Knicks were able to prevail? It's about Derrick Rose, and it's about Reggie Bullock. Bullock hits five threes and gives you 24 points. Enormous. And we've talked about this here on New York, New York. This is not a surprise to anybody who has been dialed in with us for the last month. Derrick Rose has been one of the most important Knicks on this team. On a night when you don't have Emmanuel quickly, on a night when you don't have Alec Burks, Rose goes 11 of 17, gives you 25 and 8. I feel like I got the Doc Brown time machine and I'm going back to Derrick Rose's MVP days with the Chicago Bulls. No exaggeration. No, no, I'm no hyperbole, no nothing. This guy is playing out of his mind. And Mark Jackson was talking about it during the ESPN broadcast. I don't need to hear about Derrick Rose starting for the Knicks. Who cares? You know at the end of these games, the head coach trusts him. He's a gamer. He's a warrior. And he's going to be out there when the game is on the line. That is what matters. And they're doing a great job of managing and maintaining that body. So he's not completely burnt out by the time you hit the playoffs. You think back to when Jason Kidd was on the Knicks. Last feel-good year with Mike Woodson and Carmelo and all the three-point shooting. Kidd was instrumental for that team. However, Kidd, by the time the Knicks got to the playoffs, was cooked. He had absolutely nothing left to give. Couldn't hit a shot. Had no legs. Ended up going and coaching the Nets, basically, the final the following year. That's not going to be the case with Rose. I don't get the sense the Knicks are running him into the ground. Because he's getting better. He hasn't peaked. He's getting better for this team. They don't win this game without him. 
block Rose, incredible. But then at the end of the game, when you need big plays and big moments, it's Randall and it's R.J. Barrett. And tough minutes, might I add, from Taj Gibson in the process. Every game for the Knicks now, to me, is imperative because you want to be in that 4-5 matchup. I'd prefer to have home court advantage. I don't believe it's the be-all, end-all. But if you want a realistic chance of winning in the first round, and I know a whole lot of Knicks fans want a realistic chance of winning in the first round, you have to be real with yourself, okay? You got to be real. You're not beating Philly, Brooklyn, or Milwaukee. If you do, it's beyond my wildest dreams and imaginations, okay? I can't imagine the Knicks beating one of those three teams. And as I've said countless times, Atlanta, Boston, bring them on. The problem is Simmons' pathetic Celtics, they're going to be more likely to be in that playing game than they are in the 4-5. My worst nightmare is the Knicks taking on the Heat. I don't want Miami. So I'm rooting for the Hawks. I want the Hawks to win games. Let Miami go play Milwaukee in a 3-6 and watch them knock off the Bucks. It wouldn't shock me in the least. I don't want to be matching up with one of those three teams though in the first round. I'll take Miami over Milwaukee or over Brooklyn. Either or. It's more winnable. You want Atlanta though. The Knicks, first goal, find your way into the 4-5. Then the second goal, which is kind of out of your control, hope you're not playing the Miami Heat. I want no part of playing that team because I don't like the Knicks' chances in the matchup. But this road trip, which was supposed to be the road trip from hell for the Knicks, long West Coast swing, got smoked by the Nuggets, had a brutal beat Friday night where they were up in the third quarter and completely collapsed in the fourth quarter against Phoenix. They go and win a nationally televised game against the Clippers. They are now three and two on this road trip. And even if they lose Tuesday night to the Lakers, they come back 500. Everybody and their mother would have signed for 500 on this road trip. And happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, by the way. I know my mom would have signed for three and three on this road trip, though. Hell of a job by the Knicks. Shouldn't surprise you, though, because it's been the MO and the storyline all year. Next man up, big plays, big situations, working their tails off. Hopefully working their tails off to a point where they're playing in that 4-5. We got a call right out of the gate. Oh, we always got a call right out of the gate in the leadoff spot. Who's on the horn? Hey, JJ, this is Jesse out in Santa Cruz, California. I just want to touch on something you've been bringing up quite a little bit on the show here. Uh, this idea of avoiding the Miami Heat in the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this or or maybe out east, that's not exactly what you guys think about, but the playoffs are supposed to be a lot of good teams in there, all right? The 3-6 matchup is supposed to be a tough matchup. The 4-5 matchup is supposed to be a tough matchup. And if I'm the New York Knicks, I want that tough matchup in the first round. We're not going to the finals. You're not going to win a championship, okay? Why not face Boston? Why not face Miami? One of these teams that's proven you can get some real playoff experience against some real playoff players, maybe take it deep, maybe win the series. Wouldn't that be more memorable than playing Atlanta or, or uh, you know, the Hornets and, and getting through the first round? I mean, come on. Let's have a challenge. Let's do something memorable and see, you know, where you stand in the Eastern Conference. And if I'm the, new, the Brooklyn Nets, 
I am I I don't give a fuck about what they want, okay? You lollygagged all season long. You know, you could have had the one seed, you could have had the two seed, you're taking vacations in the middle of the year. Everyone on the fucking team wants to be the MVP even though they play no games. And we're supposed to be all afraid of you in the NBA because you have this stacked team, right? So roll the ball out there and prove it. If you got to go face the Miami Heat and then you got to go face the uh, Milwaukee Bucks and then you got to go face the Philadelphia 76ers, then fucking deal with it, all right? I don't want you avoiding anyone because you're supposed to be the big bad wolf that we're all supposed to be afraid of, okay? So I don't want to hear about this, figuring out your seating. If you wanted to be one of those top two teams, you could have been one of those top two teams. You're the ones who, who created this for yourself. Go out there, see if you can beat the Miami Heat. All right, JJ, love you. Have a good one. Jesse fired up right out of the gate. I love it. You're not wrong on Brooklyn. I don't think seating is that important for Brooklyn. If they're right, if they're healthy, they're going to be Vegas favorites to get out of the Eastern Conference. Philly would be their toughest draw without a doubt, but they will be favorites, assuming everybody's right. Your point on the Knicks, listen, any series for them in the first round is going to be difficult. Atlanta would not be an easy series. They're playing well this year. Trey Young lit them up the last time they played. Lit them up. Miami, though, I look at in a much different light than any of those teams you mentioned. I'm not worried about Boston at this point. Bring them on. Knicks play the Celtics, so be it. Charlotte, you could forget about. They're not finding their way to the four or five. I think more than likely the Knicks will end up with either Atlanta or Miami in that four or five. And yeah, I think there is a drastic difference between the two. Atlanta would be a challenge. That'd be like an even money playoff series if it's Atlanta and the Knicks. I bet you when FanDuel releases those odds, which they will, they do a great job over there. They sponsor the show. We love them for that. I bet you would be minus 120, minus 125, give or take. Miami, on the other hand, Miami probably be minus 160, 170. Because that is a team that went to the NBA Finals last year. They are battle-tested. They have a dog in Jimmy Butler. They're well-coached. They shoot the ball well. I know they've had a weird, uneven regular season. That is a team I want no part of come playoff time. We have a jam-packed show. We haven't even gotten to the Yankees. It was actually a good Saturday night for the Brooklyn Nets. We'll have the voice of the Brooklyn Nets. And for my money, the premier, one of the premier play-by-play guys in all of America, the great Iron Eagle, will join us. We got a ton of listener voicemails to get to. And we'll set the stage for what is going to be a very fun week around town. All that more. New York, New York. Right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. Iron Eagle is coming up next. We welcome in one of my all-time favorites, and I'm shocked it's basically taken five weeks to get him on the podcast, (laughs) but here he is, and as I told him a moment ago, I think he looks better now than he did 10 years ago. Ain't that right, Iron Eagle? Is that a backhanded compliment? I don't know how to take that, No, I think it's a testament to the way you have aged, like (laughs) fine wine, to be honest with you. I think more than anything, it's a credit to that. Yeah, I'm going to take it just as you meant it as a major positive. So thank you. It's this deep skincare. Uh, it's eating like an 11-year-old. I, I'm just, uh, I'm breaking all the rules. Well, and you're breaking all the rules and then some, and you're going to be quite busy over the next few weeks, few months. This year, Ian, from a net standpoint, you knew it was going to be a ton of fun going into the yeah. year. You got all these big names and these big stars. They add James Harden. Has it? lived up to your expectations or due to the injuries and the absences and all the stuff that has come with this weird year, 
has that kind of thrown a little bit of a monkey wrench into things? No, it's lived up to it, JJ. I think there's a certain uh, relevance that this franchise has never experienced. And every game they play, there's interest. And I'm not talking about just local interest in Brooklyn or in the boroughs or in the suburbs. I'm talking about national interest, legitimate intrigue around the NBA. And even in the back-to-back finals years, I can't say that the team experienced that. So this is really the first time that every single day as part of the news cycle in NBA circles, they're a part of it. And not tangentially. Oftentimes, the lead story, because there's just so much curiosity as to what this team is going to be in the playoffs. Regular season, we all know they're not going to get judged on what they do in this regular season. They're probably going to finish with the best winning percentage in franchise history. With all of that said, with all of the missed games, with the extended period of time that Harden's been out, as much time as Durant missed, as the uh, early season narratives surrounded Kyrie Irving, yet they're probably going to have the best regular season in the organization's history. With that said, it means very little. Everything will be focused on what they do in the playoffs. I've been hitting on this a lot, Ian. The idea of playing these guys at the end of the year, I think it matters. I think it's important. And I understand they don't have all three humming, ready to rock and roll. So when the playoffs roll out, they're good to go. And they've played like 30 or 40 games together. That's out the window. But even last night, watching that game against Denver, slow start, looked like they were dead to rights. To come back and play the way that they did in the second half, I just think the idea of Durant Irving having their sea legs under them, because look, in the regular season, they're going to be there. You hit on it. They're going to be one of the top seeds. It's one thing resting, guys, over 70 or 80 games. You're playing every other day, Ian. you got to be ready to rock and roll. Have you felt that need for Durant and Irving over these last few weeks, regardless of seeding, two, three, whatever? just to be out there, just to be playing? Have you stressed that importance? I have, and I agree wholeheartedly. I think the team would agree with your sentiment. The fact of the matter is you can't just flip it on and flip it off at this level. And even though they have a ridiculous amount of talent, when Harden comes back, you're talking about a trio uh, that could rival any other threesome in the NBA and probably would be number one. You're you're not going to find a better Troika than these three players, one, two, three, rank them any way that you like. But there is something about chemistry. It's not just on-court chemistry, it's off-court chemistry. And I do think that's an area where they have made a lot of headway. Harden's impact on this locker room has been real. Uh, The fact that he came over was highly motivated. He realizes that his window of opportunity to win a championship is right now. He's going to be judged on that. He's won scoring titles. He's been a perennial all-star. He's made gobs of money. He's been an all-NBA selection. Every individual accomplishment he's already achieved. The one thing that has eluded him, and Kevin Durant has got a couple of them, Kyrie Irving has won himself, and that's a championship. And when you get to a certain tier in NBA superstardom, that's where you distinguish yourself. So he recognizes that. I think he's embraced all of it, and his attitude has been Fantastic. And his leadership skills, which I didn't know a whole lot about, JJ, they've been very profound. He's been vocal. He's been out front. uh, He's called guys out. And I think the impact that he's had has been 
very much felt behind the scenes. And now you got to see it out on the court and how these three really mesh over a sustained period of time. Not a game here, not a game there. And part of it might be having to work through some of those issues in the first round. That's why that first round matchup is really important. If it is a Miami in the first round, I'm not sure the Nets are going to be in a position where they can work through a lot of this. They got to go out and win. And they have to play a team that's battle-tested and a player in Jimmy Butler who will not die easily. I'm glad you brought up Miami. From a Knicks standpoint, Ian, I've been screaming it for a month. That's the one team I want no part of in a first-round series. I don't care what they've done in the regular season. That team's got balls. They got toughness. They got chutzpah. They know how to win. And if I see them in a first-round matchup, I'm not feeling good. Even a team like Brooklyn, I ain't think about this. If they got Miami in the first round, if you got to go Miami, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, that's a hell of a road to an NBA final. Yeah, and let's toss this into the equation as well, JJ, with Miami. Eric Spolster has been doing this a long time. Great coach. He's a master tactician. He's a tremendous strategist. He understands how to win in the playoffs, and he gets better as the series go on. Steve Nash, this would be his maiden voyage, of course, as a head coach, and that would be advantage Miami. Look, with all of that said, you still have the big three. If they're healthy, they're going to be favored to win the series, but the Heat will not not go down without a fight. Washington's another interesting team. If they emerge from that play-in round, which they very well could, with the two-headed monster of Beal and Westbrook, I just don't know if they have enough around them to really make a big showing in the postseason. But they could give somebody a headache. If you're Philadelphia, you end up seeing Washington in that first round in the 1-8 matchup. Uh, there could be some shaky moments along the way. Look, th- here's the other part of it, JJ. The way that this unique season has gone, I think there will be some unexpected moments in the playoffs because we can't just go off of everything that we've seen in this regular season based on the COVID protocols, based on the extended period of time that some players had to miss, the mixing and matching in the lineup, the strange schedule. We don't know how it's going to translate because you do play every other day. Some teams will benefit from that. Other teams will not. Other teams were better because they had a back-to-back or they had a deeper bench. Now we're going to see benches that might only go eight deep, nine deep in a rotation. And it doesn't matter if you've got 11 or 12 good players because most teams aren't going to play that many. The home road deal, which is very different than the past, where you had a huge advantage maybe if you were the one seed or a two seed with a a raucous home crowd. Toss that out. You might have 35% capacity. You might be a higher seed, play a team that's got 50% capacity. How does that balance out? So there are a lot of question marks now for the postseason and how it actually affects results compared to previous years where you had just a normal, regular season, and then you would base your opinions on that. Very curious to get your sense on Steve Nash. When that hire went down, I mean, he's this superstar MVP. He's got all these other interests. You know the grind that goes in it being an NBA coach. you got to have the right mentality in order to do it. And I think he seems cool, calm, collected. I saw him having a beer after the post game. I'm like, (laughs) I didn't know... I didn't know Steve was a Miller Lite guy. I see him cracking <laughs> open a Miller Lite yesterday after the game. I was like, I ain't, geez, this is me up at Syracuse popping open 350 pitchers. So he's got that like people's man type deal. <laughs> I, I see him in the neighborhood now. He's getting coffee in my neck of the woods in Brooklyn. 
You're around him every day. Superstar. Hall of Fame type of player. How have you gotten a sense for him making that transition year one? Has it been seamless? Does he seem at ease just from afar? My answer, and it helps when you got good players, but it seems like a resounding yes. You figured he would be a Molson guy. No, he's Canadian. Molson guy, he had a Canadian beer. Eh. I thought maybe, eh. hey, he, he's eh. going for what's available. I he's think trying he went to be best available. You know, he's, trying, he's trying to assimilate. When he's here in the neighborhood, he's probably drinking, I don't know, Brooklyn Brewery or other half for PBRs. You never know. I think he just takes whatever's indigenous to the area, and that's what was go. available for him in Denver. So away he goes. Figured maybe a Coors might have been there also. Yeah, that would have been more appropriate, but anyway. Yeah, with all of that said, he's very Zen-like. Uh, there is an even temperament to him, and I think it's helped him a lot in his first year as a head coach. We know even in a regular type of setup, it's hard. It's a roller coaster ride. It's new. You're dealing with personalities. Uh, there are questions being lobbed your way that you've never had to answer before, and it's all... Uh, very much a novelty act when you start. For him, under these circumstances, to carry himself the way that he has, his communication skills are through the roof. I do think Harden helped a lot. I think Harden turned out to be a unifier in that locker room. And prior to Harden getting there, it was a quiet locker room. There wasn't a lot of buzz. I don't want to say there wasn't a lot of joy, but I don't think there was a lot of back and forth like there has been now. Harden has a galvanizing way about him, and he brings out the best. And I'm not even talking about on the court, off the court in KD and Kyrie and busting chops and unifying guys. And I think Steve is wired that way as well. But as a head coach, you can't just jump into that. You're not a player anymore. You do have to separate yourself. So I think Harden has represented Steve's mindset as the player, and they share a very similar philosophy and IQ for the game and beyond. I think they've, they've really been simpatico in many ways, but I do think Steve has handled himself well. He's got uh, an excellent staff. Obviously, D'Antoni has been through it all. Jock Vaughn's been a head coach. I think there might be future head coaches on this staff right now with Ime Adoka as someone that uh, people around the NBA are very high on. So with all of that, uh, yes, here they are with uh, 20 games over 500, with four games to go in the regular season. Steve has done his job, but you and I both know judgment time comes after the regular season. Yeah, and that goes for this team, and it goes for the best player on the team in Kevin Durant. And let's be honest, Ian, going back to December, there was this great question of how he was going to look basically without playing basketball for a year and a half. And I know he's missed some time, and I know the Nets – have been very cautious in their approach, but my goodness, you're calling the games. I'm watching him here on the couch. When he plays on, it's same old Kevin Durant to me. Top five player in the NBA, gets buckets whenever he wants. He's been as advertised, right? JJ, it's been insane. Uh, if you really think about it, obviously a lot of games missed. So we don't have the large size to look back on sample size and say, oh my goodness, MVP candidate. No, he just hasn't played the required number of games to be an all NBA player or to be an MVP. But if you take what he's done and you then looked at it in the general sense over the course of a season, if he really played and put up these numbers, he's in the conversation. His numbers are ridiculous and his presence is the same as it was. Uh, there's a steadying influence to him. He can take over games. 
He's a baller. He eats this. He breathes this. He lives it. It means a lot to him. And I do think, not that he would acknowledge it or say it, but I do think there has been a sense of relief and an exhale from him that he's still the same guy. He's active in social media. He knows what's being said. You and him have something in common, by the way. Who knew? <laughs> who knew? Yeah. We'll get to that in a little bit, but who knew Ian Eagle and Kevin Durant both have burner accounts? <laughs> I don't think you're nearly as sensitive as he is, but that's a story for a different day. He's aware. Well, probably not, but he's aware. He's very cognizant. So he knows what was said. He knows what the scuttlebutt was, that he wasn't going to be the same guy, that he's not going to be able to stay on the court. All of those things, we don't know what drives athletes. The superior ones find anything, any incentive to get them rolling. I think KD has been doing that from day one. He takes the hate and then he uses it as fuel in some way. And boy, you're watching the games. I'm there calling them. It's working. He, he has looked like the same guy, all-world player. You've been calling that games for a long time, going back to the Jersey days, now making the move to Brooklyn. And I get into some hot water in discussing the element in town between the Nick fan and the Net fan. Where listen, the Nets, obviously a more viable team. They're a legitimate championship contender. The Knicks are not, but the Knicks, it's Madison Square Garden. Yeah. It's the franchise of Walt Clyde Frazier and Patrick Ewing. They're this national, worldwide, global brand. For Brooklyn Iron, what in your mind is going to be the sort of factor to push them, not just into national relevance, but to really carve that serious niche in town? Is it as simple as winning a championship? Is it multiple championships? Is it being good for a long period of time? How do you start to move the needle, at least to some degree, where, listen, there are net fans. There are a ton of them. They call me. They give me all sorts of heat. They give me all sorts of crap. I get it. But to really make this a one-in-one-A dynamic across the board, is it as simple as just win, baby? Yeah, I would say check every box that you just said. Yes, winning a championship would go a long way. Sustaining success, winning another, and then being considered an excellent franchise, an organization that people want to play for. And they've put the wheels in motion. Everything that they did, Sean Marks uh, was very skillful and I thought was incredibly prudent in how he put this together. First and foremost, he needed to change the reputation of the team. And how do you do that? Well, you got to get players to trust that this is a place that they would want to play. Again, how do you do that? The players that you have, when Marks took over, they were not the best players. This was a team that was struggling, but he treated them as if they were the best players. And their families were welcomed on the road and treated well. And that word gets around. Second, you go to agents and you start doing right by them. Understanding that you sign a player to a 10-day contract because he's represented by an agent who happens to represent bigger name players. You're creating goodwill. And I think the Knicks are doing that now. I think they finally have figured out, okay, you got to play the game. For many years, the Knicks felt like they didn't have to. The attraction was MSG. The attraction was playing in New York. The attraction was the brand. It's not anymore. How you're treated and how players perceive you 
goes a long way. And the Nets did an incredible job, a transformation to change the way that they were viewed. And then when they created the cap space, they actually went up to the plate and they swung for the fences and they connected with KD and with Kyrie Irving. And if you build it, they will come. Then James Harden wanted to be a part of it. And they had enough pieces to get that done. That doesn't happen overnight. That requires years and years of developing, of assessing talent and making sure that you're doing it the right way and you've got the right culture. From the Nets' point of view, JJ, I think it is generational. They're trying to plant seeds with families, young people. And of course, there is going to be a battle in New York. The Knicks are New York's team. But because the Knicks have not been very good for a long time, there was a vulnerable moment that the Nets jumped in on over the last several years. And slowly you're starting to feel that their fan base is growing. Is it ever going to match the Knicks fan base? No, it's not. It will not. But if both teams are really good at the same time, it will raise the level of interest in New York. And I think that will go a long way in creating a real rivalry and fans that are willing to be outspoken and say, I'm back in this team. I like this squad. I'm a fan of this organization. They're not going to change Nick fans into net fans. That's not going to happen. You got to start with younger people. And I've seen it now in the nine years that they've been in Brooklyn. I have felt that they've made some headway. Uh, I don't want to make you feel old. How long have you been doing net games in CBS for NFL? Is it 25 plus years? 30 years? 27 years with the Nets. Oh my goodness. 23 years with CBS. Um, And you're a sports radio guy. For those who are unaware, Ian Eagle and I worked at a former employer. Ian was there many moons ago. I was there rather recently. And I've never asked you this question. What is the biggest lesson? You're doing all these great games, no. high-profile events, NFL, college hoops, you name it. What's the biggest lesson you took from your years in sports radio where you were producing Mike and Chris, yep. where you were on the air doing shows? You probably did updates at some point because you oh, did yeah. everything. What's that biggest lesson that you took in the play-by-play from a talk radio background? What struck me the most as I look back on it, being behind the scenes for Mike and the Mad Dog, and Steve Summers and Russ Salzberg and Ed Coleman and Dave Sims, these two-man shows, I got this unique perspective that I'm not even sure I knew that it was going to translate to play-by-play, -play, but the chemistry required in order to do this job well. If you want to be excellent at this job, you better make the person next to you feel comfortable so they can do their best work. And I've taken a lot of pride in that part of it, in the dynamic between play-by-play -play and analyst. And that were, was completely from the seeds of WFAN. Seeing it in the newsroom and then watching it translate on the air. Mike and Chris, when I was working on that show, they actually were very close. They were friends. Wow. At I, that I, point. I, I know. Uh, document this. I I, this. It's yeah. true. I so you got the good times. You. you didn't get the bad times. Got I got lucky. the really good times. I got, you got the lucky. best times, to be perfectly frank. It was literally the best year to be behind the scenes with them because they liked one another. There was no bitching and moaning. They were into it. They were into the show. They were into the brand that was being built. 
they were rock stars. And I mean, I couldn't believe I would go out with both of them and appearances or dinner. JJ, it was ridiculous what was growing in New York. And that chemistry that really was special off the air and worked on the air. Eventually, there was very little chemistry off the air, but it still worked on the air. They always had that. They could not necessarily speak for weeks at a time off the air, but on the air, they had something special. The give and take was magical. And that was a little something that I really felt that I carried with me when I started working with analysts of, hey, you got to create something off the air and you can't BS on the air. I'm not saying that every analyst has got to be your best friend, but you better find out what their strengths are and then showcase those strengths. Because if they look good, you look good. It's a two person. You are judged as a team, not as an individual. And that resonated with me very early at my FAN tenure. Well, I think about you and CD this year. We had Charles Davis on a couple of weeks ago. You guys are working together for the first time. Yeah. I heard one of your first broadcasts because I'm I'm actually a broadcast junkie, believe it or not, Ian. You I know you know, are. But like, I, I like to get into this stuff. I like to know who's doing what game. I want you assigned on every Dolphin game known <laughs> to man. But like, in all seriousness, you and CD did a game early in the year. It was the first time I heard you guys together. I'm like, they sound like they have been working together for like a decade. Does that usually happen over like a bunch of meetings, drinks, shooting the shit, that type of deal? Or is it the idea of just getting reps and that's how you develop that chemistry? Yeah, in this particular case with Charles Davis, because of the pandemic, we could not be around one another. Literally, on the road, we were not allowed to have a meal together. We had to be separate. We had to take separate cars to the stadium. We never had one in-person meeting with a team or with one another. We went through an entire season like that. Charles and I knew each other a little bit. We had met once or twice. Uh, I would say he was an acquaintance. We, we certainly weren't on the friend level, but we decided early on that we would do Zooms every single week. And we did it for five consecutive You and the months. rest of America, by the way. I know. But did you guys bring like the virtual cocktails? Did you guys have like virtual Zoom parties while you were at it? Uh, well. Me, Charles, and Evan Washburn started joining up together week in, week out. Then we worked in our producer, Mark Wolf and Bob Fishman, just to create a little bit of chemistry and familiarity. And I went into week one thinking, and maybe it was naivete on my mind, that it was going to work. I just thought we had Cleveland, Baltimore week one. We took one walk together on Saturday in Baltimore, like a 25-minute walk. Walked around, came back. That was it. The next time we were together was in the booth. First time we worked together was that game. And JJ, you're right. It felt like we had been doing games together for 10 years. It was just really easy. He's a great teammate. He's a great partner. To answer your question, no, it doesn't always work that way. It really depends on the individual, your ego, and what kind of what kind of person are you? Are you someone that uh, sees this as we're in it together, or are you an individual? I, I don't like personally the broadcast style of Q and A. I don't want to ask him 12 questions on the air. I want to have a conversation. It's more fun that way. Totally agree with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. It's more enjoyable. Yeah. And I know there's some out there like, well, you know, it's your job to set them up. Yeah, yeah. 
it's your job to set them up, but set them up in a way where you're conversing, not where it's pointed question, pointed question, pointed question. That's not a give and take. That's not a partnership. You know, you want it to feel like a couple of people that are at lunch or at dinner and you're part of the conversation. If you're at dinner or lunch and one person is just dominating and asking question after question after question after question, at some point you would check out. So uh, that's really important to me that it is both of us and there's a back and forth. And Charles is a believer in that too. So really kind words from you. And uh, I, I agree. It really was pretty amazing that we, we hit the ground running the way that we did. Let's take Syracuse out of this for a second because everybody's got butterflies when you're 21, 22, whatever the age may be. Your professional career, you've done a lot of these big time events. Yep. What event more than any other did you have like the most butterflies before <laughs> you're doing like that open, you know, the music hits, you hear it in your ear, like the NFL on CBS song and the Nets song. Like, was there one particular game that you look back on where you're like, holy smokes, the butterflies for this one were crazier than any of the rest? If there's one particular event, I don't get nervous before I go on the air, but I do have a sense of anticipation because I know how much work I've put into it. And I care a lot. And if you don't care, then maybe you feel nothing. But the butterflies, you've got to use in a positive way. And I've convinced myself, maybe again, based on the fact that I started so young, that I can make it work for me. So of course, there's the energy that you've built up. And my first game for CBS was Peyton Manning's first game as a pro. Wow. The Colts and the Dolphins. I think I might have heard that on the NFL throwback yes. uh, Instagram page. I actually think I've sent a few of those your way. You might have a burner Instagram. For that, <laughs> so, you might. so 1998, your Miami Dolphins. Dan Marino is last year in Miami taking on Peyton Manning, his first year in the NFL. So the first production meeting that I ever had, the first interview that I ever did NFL on CBS was with Peyton Manning. Wow. And he walks into the room and he is so sharp, even as a rookie, he was so buttoned up and polished. He knew my name. He looks me in the eye, goes, Hey, I am Peyton Manning shakes my hand. Like, That's awesome. Like, I would want that like videotape. Yeah. I'd, like walk around the Eagle house. I'd be showing, <laughs> knowing the kids. Hey, I thought Peyton knew my name. Right. right. So there's that moment where I'm like, Holy shit. Peyton Manning knows my name already. Man, I'm a pretty big deal. I realized that no other NFL player that season knew my name. It was just Peyton Manning because he took the time. He probably asked the PR director, like, hey, who am I meeting with? Oh, Ian Eagle, Mark May. All right, away we go. I ended up having the Colts five times that year. So I did a lot of rookie Peyton Manning of, of that season. And I think there was some sense of, man, this is kind of a big deal as I'm getting ready to do the open and it's all new and I had no real background in football play-by-play -play on television. I had done the one year of Jets radio in 1997. I'd done three games in the, the world league in Europe. You know, I had Ryan fire against uh, Barcelona dragon tape. That's it. And I think that game, if I remember correctly, there was a moment like right before we went on the air where I had to take a deep breath and then just block it 
all out and focus. And it's there on the internet. You can watch the open. And I look really young. And it looks like a ventriloquist act of me on Mark May's lap because he's a big dude. And that was it. That was game number one. It went well. Somebody at CBS, a executive, called my agent the next day and said, hey, we're interested in Ian maybe long term. Like they they were happy enough with that. They never offered the long term deal. They just said it at the time. <laughs> but it all worked out and, and we're 23 years later. So that's the one game. If you had to pin me down and say when you maybe felt a little something like right before I went on the air, I did have to do a double take and say, hey, dude, cool it. You're not going to screw this up. Just just go do your thing. Final one. And maybe this is fresh in my mind because we had Mike Breen on the show just a couple of days ago. So I go from broadcasting royalty with the Knicks to broadcasting royalty with Cuse and you for that matter. Not to blow smoke, but I, and I think New York sports fans, we're blessed, man. You know, like I'm watching a Nick game. Brainy's doing the game with Clyde. I'm watching a net game. It's you and Sarah and Richard Jefferson. And it's like, I got the two, and I'm biased, and I understand, and I have an opinion, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think we have the two best basketball people calling local games. Like, do you ever pinch yourself saying, like, holy smokes, that's the, me and Mike Breen are, like, calling all these games for all New York City to hear. And then when we hear you guys doing it on a national level, you know, it's like the New Yorkers, the Jersey, the Tri-State area unites. And it's like, these are our guys. These are our people. Like, I, I think that's awesome. I don't know if you ever think about that, but I know I would. JJ, I pinch myself all the time. Truly. Uh, I just know how fortunate I am. This is not an easy business to navigate. There's no real handbook. When you start, you get in, you go off your instincts, you try to treat people the right way. And every assignment you get, you take seriously and you give it your best effort. Prepare, inform, entertain, but ultimately you got to catch some breaks. Uh, You've got to be with the right network that has the rights. And you got to be with the right network that has the rights at the right time. And you got to be with the right partner and you got to be with the right producer. And you have to have a boss that believes in you. And when your boss gets let let go, you got to have a boss that steps in and also believes in you. And all of these things are out of your control. The only thing you can control is your performance. So I do think about it. Um, you can't let it dominate your thoughts. But the idea that Mike Breen, who I got to know well at FAN Radio, this was not just someone that uh, was was uh, on the on the side. This was someone I knew well for him. To Did you get... see Superstar written all over him when you worked with him back then? Yeah, I mean, you just knew he had a presence about him and he just had uh, a real confidence in who he was. And no matter what he was put in, he handled it. At the time he was doing Imus and he was doing sports comedy in the morning and he gets the Nick radio job. And I just remember vividly being so happy for him that I felt like I had gotten it. And you would think in that spot, you would be bitter and pissed off. And it was the opposite. I, I, I felt like it was an accomplishment. And in a way, maybe I was vicariously living through him. I thought, well, that means it's possible. That means it's attainable. And when the next job popped up, I ended up getting the next job uh, a year or two later, and 
the fact that both of us were doing the NBA in New York, we did have a couple of, of those moments when we looked at one another or literally said out loud, because Mike is a humble guy, as you know, of, can you believe this? Like they're trusting us to do this? Do they have any understanding <laughs> that we're not who you think we are? And then you grow into the role and years go by and you, uh, you look up and it's 27 years and, and it's hard to believe. And you say, I've gotten better looking. I agree with that. I agree with that. That's you. That's from your, your mouth. That's I'm, not, I'm, 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 next time I see your wife, I'm going to ask her. I hope the answer <laughs> is yes. I'll try and push that agenda on your behalf. I'm more than happy to do so. I think no. you look better. I do. And I'll be banging the table, guaranteed, when Marv walks away, whenever that may be, that you should be the number one lead guy at TNT and I'll be your number one agent. I know you got a good one, but I'm more than happy to help on that behalf. But here's what I got to know. What is it going to take? What is the over-under right now? One and a half years? three and a half years, five and a half years, 20 and a half years that we can get Iron Eagle officially on Twitter. <laughs> uh, never. Never? Never. Noah never. hasn't even been able to push you off no. the edge? That's unfortunate. No, no, I'm a voyeur. I like You're my You're a burner. Role. You're a burner. My burner account treats me well. I'm aware of everything that's going on. But I mean, you were even aware of the billboard. I was shocked. I'm aware of the billboard. I, I saw it today. It's a little disturbing. Here's the, yeah. Here's the thing. I don't have to live in the mud. I just get to visit. And then I leave. And that's not a knock. It's a really valuable tool. And, and it comes down to this, JJ. I was high enough in my career that I wasn't forced to join. You didn't have to be on it. Good point. Correct. Good when point. Twitter came around, my employers, this is a really interesting distinction. My employers came to me and said, hey, is this something you'd want to do? As opposed to, hey, we need you, you to, to do, do this. It. Yeah. Yeah. And my reaction was, mm, no, I don't think so. They're like, no problem. You're good. If it was a year or two earlier, I think I would have been at a level where I would have heard from my employers that would have said, hey, you need to do this. Sign up. You know, we need you pumping out content and pushing the brand. So I, I took it as uh, as a gift. I know what's happening, but I'm uh, I'm unscathed. Good for you. Well, thanks for doing this. I know you're going to be super busy doing ten thousand games over the next three months, but hopefully a couple of real and spectacular calls. I'm hoping a few. JJ, congratulations to you. I mean, this is. Incredible. I'm so happy for you. So proud of you. You got a big boy plant. Like that's next level. Ah, that's Kate. I can't take credit for the plant. Doesn't matter. I I could. The bobbleheads, the bobbleheads, I'll take credit. It falls the under the JJ domain. So there just, you go. I'll, I'll run with it. Take credit. I'll run it, with it. It looks very adult. You're an very adult. Very adult. I try. I try. Even though I shaved today and I look like I'm 25. <laughs> the great Iron Eagle. We got so much more to do. We'll cover right back. Can't believe that was actually the first time we've had my good buddy, my good pal, the great Iron Eagle on New York, New York. And I don't say this because he came on the show and I don't say this to blow smoke. He's one of the best in the business. He's charismatic. He's entertaining, knows his stuff. And any broadcast Iron is able to do, whether it's on the NFL, college hoops or the Nets, it's exemplary. So listen, I don't have a dog in the fight. I don't work at Turner. When Marv Albert retires, if it's at the end of this year or it's next year, Iron Eagle should be the number one guy for TNT. 
And I like Kevin Holland. I think he's great. I like Brian Anderson. I think he's terrific. Ian's the best. I know I'm a little biased. I think Ian is the best. I want him doing those games. So I, I don't know, you know, if I got to put in a word at Turner. I don't know if I got to work my guys over at the Montag group who are some of the all-time greats. Get Ian Eagle that TNT job. Ian Eagle, Jim Jackson, thank me later. All I know is that I want all the royalties when the broadcast is a smashing success. I want all the credit. 10% and all the credit, okay? Those guys will do all the work. I just want to look pretty, basically. And then you have inside the NBA with that game broadcast. I mean, you'd be killing it. Like Fab once said, you'd be killing it, you'd be killing it. I don't even know. I used to know those songs and those lyrics like it was, you know, nobody's freaking business. Now I sound like I'm going to be 33 in a week. Yeah, sounds about right. Good win for the Nets on Saturday on a much more serious note because that looked like another dud performance against Denver. They're down big in the first half. Jokic is killing them. You're thinking, oh, geez, the Nets are going to be locked into this three seed at this point because they don't have the tiebreak over Milwaukee. And then they came alive in the second half. And it wasn't just Durant and Irving. They got great minutes out of Blake Griffin. Big shots were made by Joe Harris. Jeff Green had a couple of moments too. That's what you want to see come playoff time because you know there's going to be a moment or two where the Nets are going to need something out of Blake Griffin or they're going to need something out of Jeff Green or they're going to need Joe Harris to hit a big shot. That's why I like the makeup of this team a lot. They have a lot of different dudes. It's about health and it's about being able to play a lick of defense especially against an interior presence. That is my concern for Brooklyn. But they did a decent enough job of neutralizing Jokic in the fourth quarter and got a really good road win. That's one of the better Brooklyn net wins of the year, finding a way to get it done against the Nuggets. So over the final week of the year, your questions for the Knicks and the Nets, simple. The Nets trying to lock up that two seed, don't see them as a one seed. And for the Knicks, staying in that 4-5. And hoping Miami is not a part of that series. Now, you got all that going on with the NBA stuff. And we haven't even gotten to the Yankees yet. And all in all, let's give the Yankees credit where credit is due. They had a hell of a homestand. Sweeping the Tigers. Two out of three against the Astros. Two out of three against the Washington Nationals. And Saturday at around hmm, 6, 6.30, I thought the Yankees had let down series written all over them after Friday's ugly loss. And the eighth inning on Friday night was probably the ugliest Yankee defensive inning I think I've seen all year from Aaron Judge misplaying something out in the outfield. Uh, Glaber ended up having a mistake. Uh, DJ ended up committing an error. I mean, it it was mistake score. I'm forgetting about a few because it was a few days ago, but it was just an absolute shit show. And then on Saturday, they couldn't touch Max Scherzer. And if the Nationals ever put Scherzer on the open market and you're a contending team, go and get him. He is locked in. He is dialed in. He's pitching for his next contract. And for what it's worth, the Scherzer contract with Washington, which he signed for big bucks, seven, eight years after the 2014 offseason, that will go down as one of the best free agent baseball contracts ever signed. And if you think I'm exaggerating, go and look at the numbers for Max Scherzer every year, 2015 on. The guy has been an absolute stud. 
He's a horse. He could play for my team any day of the week. And if he's available and the Nationals are selling, go get him if you're the Yankees. I mean, imagine a one-two punch with Cole and Max Scherzer. Luxury tax be damned. But he was dealing against the Yankees on Saturday. And the Yankees won a game that he pitched where he struck out 14 of 15. He only gave up one run and was unhittable. You felt like the Yankees got away with highway robbery, basically. They got a big hit from Torres in the ninth inning. The bullpen did a wonderful job in extra innings. Justin Wilson really stepped up. And Glaber Torres got a big hit, walking it off, even though it was a dribbler. You take it, you run with it, a win is a win. Well, Sunday, this had bad loss written all over it. You got six shutout innings out of Domingo Herman. Glaber Torres finally hit his first home run of the year. And Aaron Boone, just like I would have if I were managing the game, Tried pushing Domingo into the seventh inning. Smart move. He's dealing. His pitch count is low. Try and get seven, eight strong if you can. Made a mistake to Kyle Schwarber. Can't do that Yankee Stadium with his swing. He puts it in the second deck and it's tied. And I'm like, oh, geez. The Yankees are not scoring runs. They're winning games, but they are not hitting at all. How are they going to find a way to pull this through? They squander an opportunity in the eighth inning. They get... Dominant work from Araldis Chapman in the ninth inning. And then the Yankee bats, they don't really go to work. A couple of walks. Brad Hand for the second day in a row yucks it up. But the one Yankee who you've been able to count on time and time again, 30-plus games into this year, Giancarlo freaking Stanton. And I don't know what Brad Hand was doing giving Giancarlo Stanton something to hit with Aaron Hicks on deck with a base open, two strikes, every pitch he should have thrown was out of the strike zone where you get John Carlos Stanton to chase. Stanton got something to hit, hit a rope, walks it off, and the Yankees walk it off against the Nationals back-to-back days. Great homestand. I still need more out of this lineup. You're getting nothing out of Frazier. You're getting nothing out of Sanchez, who right now should be a part-time player with Kyle Higashioka. Aaron Hicks, even though he's been a little bit better as of late. Not the Aaron Hicks we saw a couple of years ago. I'm hopeful that Luke Voigt's return this week is going to spark the lineup and is going to get him going. But the Yankees are winning games where they're not scoring a whole lot of runs. What's the common theme and the common denominator? They're pitching. They're starting pitching. Not just Garrett Cole. Herman, his last three starts. Terrific. Kluber, last four starts. Terrific. Tyon, even in a losing effort on Friday, was very good. Montgomery has been solid. That's how you win games. Getting length and getting quality length out of your starting pitching. It's weird. A month into this season, I think a lot of people's general concern going into the year was about the Yankees starting rotation. Right now, the rotation is doing the job. The Yankee bats have got to follow suit. Without further ado, it's now time. Let's hammer that listener voicemail line. I mean, I feel like I've been reacting to stuff like crazy. There's been a lot to get to. That's what happens when we do a Sunday pod. Lines are jammed. The calls are ready. Who's coming out hot? JJ, uh, it's Anthony in Syosset. Listen, the Yankees just won. Um, but again, Tyler Wade, skinny jean motherfucker, high top bitch, you know, get, leads off with a walk and can't steal a base. So... But enough of that. What I want, J.J., 
Um, I, I want an apology. I want an apology from you. I want an apology from Computer Chris. I want an apology from Fat Fuck Alex in Newark on uh, Domingo. Domingo, the Mandingo, who's a bingo as far as I'm concerned in terms of a number two or maybe even three starter, depending on Kluber. I've said it once. I'll say it a million times. This team, I mean, granted, they need to hit. You know, ten walks and five hits today. Ten walks and five hits. They scored three runs. It should have been a lot more. They need to hit. But in the playoffs, you need to pitch, too. And you're going to need this guy. And you all mocked me two years ago when I saw Talon in the Domingo, Bingo, Mandingo. So I'd like an apology. And I'd like you, I'd like your thoughts on Domingo, who's been all right so far this year for us. Thank you, Double J. By the way, it's Anthony and Syosset, Domingo. Anthony and Syosset is like the leader of the Domingo Herman fan club. And I'll give Anthony and Syosset credit because at my old gig, he was a guy calling me in 2019, early that year, saying, I believe in the stuff. I believe in the makeup. He's a frontline starting pitcher. Well, Herman has had his demons off the field. But when he's been on the mound for the Yankees, 2019 and now in 2021, stuff is really good. It plays. So I will apologize, Anthony and Sayas, and I will give you credit for your finding and your discovery of Domingo Herman. Now, I can't get on Tyler Wade, by the way, for not stealing a base when Aaron Judge is up, because you know if you steal a base and Aaron Judge is up, he's getting walked, he's getting pitched around, even though Aaron Judge has been in a massive funk. It's amazing. Aaron Judge was red hot a week ago. Now, Aaron Judge can't buy a hit. He had a stretch where he struck out like six or seven times in a row this week. He has not been particularly good. He'll get it going. He's too good a player. Most important thing is that he's on the field and that he's playing. That's why Tyler Wade didn't steal a base. But you want credit for Herman? Sure. Yankee pitching's been really good. Now the bats got to follow suit. Who's up next? Hey, JJ. What's going on, man? It's your boy Langston calling out of the Bronx, you know what I'm saying? I just wanted to check in because since the Yankees have been winning ball games recently, I don't hear as much from your boy Bill Simmons. You know, early on we hit a rough patch and he was calling in every episode with his smug demeanor and everything else. But now all of a sudden we win in games, the starting pitching is legit, the guys are hitting, the bullpen is the best in baseball. Now you can go hear a peep out of him. What's going on? That's one thing about Yankee fans, man. People can say what they want. But when we're not doing well, we don't excuse ourselves from the conversation. You know what I'm saying? At least we 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 stick it out. So what's up, Bill Simmons? Where you at, bro? Anyway, man, I just figured I'd check in with you. Thanks for what you do. You're the best at what you do, man. Keep it up. Well, I appreciate that love, number one. You bring up a fair point that we have not heard from Bill in Los Angeles in quite a while. And I think it's because Bill in Los Angeles is a little distracted. His basketball team might have to play next week in the uh, dopey playing tournament that the league has put together. So I think his focus might be on that. And I can't talk crap right now about his baseball team, who currently sits 22-13, and four-game winning streak, and they're three and a half games up on the New York Yankees. So right now, I can't poke fun at the Red Sox, who are playing some really, really good baseball. And I'm hoping and praying that this is not 2018 all over again a year where the Red Sox come out of nowhere and win the American League and win the World Series. That would be a nightmare for everybody. But I think Bill Los Angeles and his distraction has nothing to do with the Yankees. I think he's just preoccupied on, you know, his underachieving basketball team. Who's up next? Hey, JJ. Long-time fan listener. Love the new pod. Listen every, uh, every time it comes out. I just got finished watching the Met game on uh, Friday night against the Diamondbacks. And... I watched the Lindor presser, and 
I, when I was watching it live, I thought, you know, I chuckled a little bit. I thought it was kind of funny. And then I go scroll through Twitter and I see all these people, all these media personalities talking about how it's insulting their intelligence that he made up a story about a rat and a, and a raccoon. I mean, were you, was your intelligence insulted when Pete Alonzo told you about a hitting, uh, an approach coach that doesn't exist, Donnie Stevenson? I don't know, there's this double standard between Alonzo and Lindor. Lindor's been here for a month and a half. Let him freaking breathe, you know? You know, don't, I know this is what New York does, but let him breathe a little bit. This is this team is built on those kind of funny stories. And, hey, maybe maybe it can help uh, McNeil and Lindor uh, bond if that was, you know, if the fight if it was a fight, which seems to be. But I, I don't know. I, I thought it was kind of funny. And it, I'm sure if he said nothing or if he just blew off the question or didn't show up to the presser, I'm sure the same people would be complaining about it, about uh, Lindor, you know? Let the guy freaking breathe. Go kick rocks. All right. Love the pod, JJ. Good luck. I see your point with that double standard. And we notice it all the time with a homegrown guy and the hired guy. It's why Aaron Judge can go 0 for 10 with eight strikeouts. Probably not going to get booed at Yankee Stadium. John Carlos Stanton goes 0 for 10 with eight strikeouts. He's going to be here in a cat hole. That's just the way it goes. Um, I, for one, didn't like the way the Mets handled it. I shouldn't say the Mets. Lindor. And McNeil kind of buying into this rat, raccoon nonsense. I just thought it was dopey. Just like I thought the fake hitting coach was dopey. But if you win in games, who the hell cares? The bottom line is, I saw a different edge from Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil on Saturday. And then again on Sunday. And if yelling at one another and maybe throwing a couple of shoves or punches is what got them going, Sometimes that happens on a team. After the game, though, say, you know what? We're keeping it in-house. I don't need to hear about rats or raccoons. I mean, that to me is just it's kind of juvenile and childish. But, hey, this is what it is. Who's next? KJ, what's up, bro? This is Bruno calling from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Big fan of yours. Used to listen to you on the fan. Love that you're on the ringer now. Also a long-suffering Nets fan. And here's what I want to hear from you. The Nets, in my opinion, are trash without James Harden, bro. I think they are destined for a first-round playoff exit unless he comes back at 100%, no matter who they play. Kyrie and KD can score, but the entire offense is Harden, and I think if the playoffs start tomorrow, they lose in six in the first round, no matter what. All right, thanks, JJ. Keep up the good work. I'll keep listening. Bruno, I love you, buddy. I couldn't disagree more. If you're playing Charlotte, you're playing Washington, you're playing the Celtics, the Nets don't need James Harden to win that series. Or any of those series, for that matter. Miami, I feel differently about. And I think you guys might be noticing an overarching theme here on this New York, New York pod. I have a weird love affair with the Miami Heat. And I think it's because of last year, to be honest with you. They were very good to me. They made me a whole lot of money. And yeah, I think they're going to play well in the postseason. I don't want to play Miami if I'm Brooklyn. You heard Ian Eagle say it a few minutes ago. I don't want to play them. It's a tough matchup. You're going to get by that series. You're going to have to work. It is not going to be easy. I think you need to separate Miami from those other teams at the bottom of the Eastern Conference. I mean, the Nets cannot lose in the first round. That would be an unmitigated disaster after this year. Cannot lose in the first round. Nor do I expect that to be the case. Who's next? Hey, JJ. This is Tron from Long Island. Thanks so much for taking the call. Listen, just want to talk some Jets now. The dust has kind of settled after the draft. 
I'm wondering with the skill position guys they have, now with Moore coming on, Corey Davis, uh, Denzel Mims, perhaps even Chris Herndon, we'll see with Crowder, just wondering how they stack up in your minds with the rest of the league. Uh, I find myself being excited about these guys. I'm just not sure if I should have genuine NFL excitement or if my expectations are just so low now with the Jets these last few years that they're just, you know, Jets good and not real NFL good. Just wonder how they stack up and whether I should temper my expectations or uh, what your thoughts are on it. Thanks so much, JJ. Take care. I think you hit on something that's important. The bar has been set so low when it comes to Jet playmakers on offense that you look at Corey Davis and you look at Denzel Mims and you look at Elijah Moore and you're like drooling. Because you think about what they've had. Basically, from 2013 on, if you take away the Brandon Marshall, Eric Decker year of 2015, I mean, there's been a whole lot of garbage. Garbage playmakers across the board for a variety of different quarterbacks. They are more explosive on offense. Do I think the Jets, from a playmaker standpoint, are in the top 10 of the league? I mean, is this going to remind you of Godwin, Mike Evans, Antonio Brown, and Scotty Miller, and Gronk? I don't think so. And I don't think it's going to remind you of Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, or even up in Buffalo where you got Stephon Diggs and, and Cole Beasley. No. The Jets. They're not in that conversation. They're better, though. Low bar, but this quarterback should be able to have more success because there are different guys he could throw it to. Who's up next? What up, JJ? It's Steve from Brooklyn. The last time I saw you, you were dressed like Woody from Toy Story, and we were shooting darts during normal times. But congrats on the move to the ringer. And I just want to talk about the Knicks real quick. I hate to get ahead of things, and there's been plenty of Lonzo chatter, but I think the Knicks offseason is going to be Chris Paul and Carmelo Anthony two former Leon Rose clients. We all know Melo wants his retirement tour, and his kid will be starting high school in Queens. CP3 at high praise for the Knicks after Friday's game, and this wouldn't be the same old Knicks or another Amari or Antonio McDyke situation. I know the point guard has $40 million player option and a good deal in Phoenix, but they aren't exactly the 73-win Warriors, and DeAndre Ayton isn't the next Kareem. The league is all about connections, and you can bet this is what Leon Rose and James Dolan would love to see, so I can really see it too. Thanks, JJ. Stevie, good stuff. And I do remember that Woody costume. It was an all-time winner amongst my great Halloween costumes over the years. Put it right up with McLovin. Put it right up with the Teletubbies. Uh, squints from the Sandlot. I've had a bunch of deuces. I'm intrigued by the idea of Chris Paul in a big-time way. Chris Paul is a winner. He is a gamer and has made every situation he's gone to in the NBA flat out better. And I know he has his detractors because they'll argue he hasn't been to an NBA Finals. He has not won an NBA championship. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Chris Paul is a better point guard than Isaiah Thomas. I've heard that in the past. That's outrageous. And I like Chris Paul. Isaiah Thomas, look at what he did with the Pistons. Don't put those guys in the same sentence, please. Don't do it. Don't insult your intelligence. But Paul, coming to the Knicks, would make them a better team. And I see the connections with Leon Rose and with World Wide West. And listen, I'm not aboard the Carmelo train by himself. He comes with Paul, I'm receptive. And I was a Carmelo guy through and through. In many ways, he got a raw deal here. Phil completely railroaded him. Sabotaged him. Triangle offense was an absolute joke. Mel's a guy that didn't make players better around him. As the number one player. He just didn't. 
He's not a great defender. He's not a great passer. He's not a great athlete. He's a great scorer. And that's what he did at his very best. He could score like crazy. Carmelo now buying into a different role? Not adamantly against it. But I think the priority out of those two, it stands down, Chris Paul. Two to go. Who's on the horn? Yo, what up, John? Andrew and Bay Ridge here. I got two things for you. Number one, NFL. Which quarterback, other than Trevor Lawrence, do you think will have the best rookie contract? I kind of like the guy from the Jets. I mean, they have a new coaching staff there. You know, they got some players that they can really uh, throw the ball to, maybe make it happen a little bit. I like what I saw from him at uh, BYU. Uh, He looked pretty good. I'm going to take a shot with uh, the Jets guy. Also, let's go over to NBA now. Knicks, how about Emmanuel quickly? Not bad. 18 points in 24 minutes on Wednesday night, John. I'm investing in his cards. I have a bunch of them. Now, my question is, if the Knicks end up playing the Hawks in that first round, and we have some time to go, but if that matchup does happen, what would you put the series price as? I'm very interested to see what you think about that. Me personally, I would have that Knicks minus 130. What do you think, John? I'll talk to you. Bye. That's the legend. The great Andrew and Bay Ridge, one of my regulars back in the JJ After Dark days. Always love hearing from Andrew. Fires me up. Gets me going. Loved our Friday late happy hours, even though they were like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Happy hour? Anytime, any place on this show. Um, I think the Knicks series price with Atlanta would depend a lot on home court advantage. I think if the Knicks had home court advantage, 125 is a reasonable number. I think it's in that 120 to 130 range. If Atlanta ends up having home court advantage, I could see it being minus 110. I could even see Atlanta being minus 120. What's the point I'm getting at with those two teams? That's a coin flip type of series. The odds will reflect as such. Miami would not. The Knicks would not be favored in a series against the Heat. Miami would be minus 180, 185. I don't think it would get to 200, minus 180, 185. Now, that quarterback question is a doozy. Lawrence is the obvious answer. After Lawrence, it's about situation. I'm not a fields guy. I'm not. I know he's got mobility. But I don't trust the Bears. I mean, it's the same Bear organization that passed up Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson. I don't trust them. I don't trust Ryan Pace. I don't trust Matt Nagy. I don't care if they've made the playoffs a couple of times. I don't trust the Bears. Therefore, I'm not putting my eggs in the Justin Fields basket, who against top defenses did not distinguish himself. I know he played great against Clemson. Made some big boy throws against Clemson. Plenty of other games I didn't love. You know who I'd actually probably put my money on? And it's not Wilson. Even though I like Wilson, it's Mac Jones with New England. As sick as that may be. And I hope I'm wrong on this. They're the Patriots. They know what they're doing. And could I see Mac Jones being, you know, a top 12 quarterback for Bill Belichick, getting that second contract? Maybe being a better version, let's say, of Jimmy Garoppolo? Yeah. So that would be my answer for you right now. Kind of split between Jones and... Wilson, the Jets being the Jets, the Patriots being the Patriots, I think has a lot to do with this.
Last but not least, who's on the horn? JJ, what a Mother's Day. John Carlos Sam with a walk-off, and then the Knicks beating the, Qua- beating the Clippers at the Staples Center. How about Derrick Rose? How about that trade of Dennis Smith Jr. in a second-round pick for Derrick Rose and how crucial he's been leading the Knicks' second unit and closing out games for the Knicks down the stretch? Now, I want to know what you think about this. Earlier this week, I took a flyer on Derrick Rose to win sixth man of the year. It was plus 10,000 odds. Let me know what you think about that, and let's go Knicks. Plus 10,000 odds is a problem. I love Derrick Rose. I love what he's brought to this Knicks team. There is a reason why you were able to get Rose at plus 10,000 to win the sixth man of the year. Not going to happen. He's been a great Nick. He's been instrumental in what they've done in the second half of the year. Derrick Rose is not winning six man. But what he is going to be able to do is get serious crunch time minutes for this team in playoff games. What the Knicks are going to need Derrick Rose to play well if they're going to advance beyond the first round. And I was thinking about Rose in his return to New York. We had this conversation with Mike Vaccaro earlier in the week about a New York athlete, two different stints with the franchise, the second being a lot better than the first. I blanked on this guy. Mike blanked on this guy. We were texting about it. And somebody brought it up to me on Twitter. I give him credit. I know who it was. Whoever you were, give yourself a round of applause. Ruben Sierra. Big Ruben Sierra with the Yankees. Because remember, in 95, Sierra was on that team that played the Mariners in the Hold On to the Roof Don Mattingly series. The Edgar Martinez game that I've blocked out of my memory. Sierra hit a couple home runs in that series, but was a dog. Team couldn't stand him. Then in 96, Joe Torre hated his guts. They traded him for Cecil Fielder, and the Yankees don't win the 96 World Series without Big Daddy, who had the one run-scoring hit against John Smoltz in Game 5 of that 96 World Series. But the Yankees brought back Big Rube in 2003. And I remember when they brought him back, a lot of people were like, oh, he was toxic in the clubhouse. Can you have him around the Yankees? And he was a gem. He was on a team for three years. He had some enormous hits. A couple of playoff games. I remember game four, facing elimination against the Angels. Had a run scoring hit. Either to tie the game or to cut the Yankees from 2 nothing to 2-1. to one, Big time hit. I remember I was in the building for that one. And then in the 3 World Series, which I'm still sick to my stomach about because the Yankees ruined the Aaron Boone game by losing to the dopey Florida Marlins. They were up 2-1, down three runs in the ninth inning. And I think Sierra hit a two-run triple off of Ugaf Urbina to tie that baby up. Ruben Sierra had a ton of big hits and was a better Yankee second time around than the first time around. So that makes it come full circle with Derrick Rose. In case you're wondering, this is how my, my brain and my operation and my process... I get so sick and tired when I hear about process, by the way, with these teams. This is my process. Me, spit-firing, baby. Thinking aloud. That's how we roll. That's what we do. We'll set the stage for the week. I'll also tell you what I've been doing with a lot of my free time over the course of the weekend. It's a little disturbing and exciting and all of that combined into one. Where else would you rather be? It's New York, New York. We're coming right back. So, in addition to watching a ton of sports over the weekend, this is what my mind was occupied on. The first, I'm re-watching the OC. Yeah, I'm admitting this for podcast land. 
and for New York City to hear and for America to hear. It's one of my favorite all-time shows. It's great. I mean, Seth Cohen, Summer Roberts, Ryan and Marissa. I'm like finishing up the end of season one. So I'm all in. I, I feel like I will probably do a little random stream of consciousness. Once I finish the series, I'll give you a couple of thoughts that have come my way in my TV pea brain brainstorm. But what came out of watching a bunch of episodes this weekend is Bob Seger's Night Moves is cranking. And a couple of great scenes. One with Luke and Julie Cooper. Then there's another one where Luke is just pounding beers in his truck and driving like an idiot. He shouldn't be driving. But the point being is this. Bob Seger had a hell of a career. And I was trying to think of the most iconic Bob Seger song. Night Moves to me is probably the song. I think it's still the same as his best. Because it's got a lot of gambling references in there. It's, 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 it's a doozy. But then you got Against the Wind, which is in Forrest Gump. Hollywood Nights, which was the uh, anthem for Chris Berman years ago. Main Street, Turn the Page. I can't get enough Bob Seger. So basically all weekend was the OC, Bob Seger, and a ton of sports. So Rudy, Night Moves for Seger, I think that's got to be the number one most iconic song, correct? Totally disagree. I think it's Turn the Page. Really? Why? So why do, why do we think Turn the Page here? Please elaborate. That, yeah, it just puts me in my dad's car driving around. I don't really know why. Like, the others are great. Um, no disrespect to those. They're all good. But I, it's just such a badass song, Turn the Page. And that's what I think of when I think of Bob Seger. It is a badass song. I mean, it's badass to the point where Metallica actually covered it and did a badass cover, it might I add. I, I just think when Night Moves, it's just like this coming-of-age song, you know. I used her, she used me, neither one can. We're just getting all, like, come on, man. Like, that's like iconic 70s. Teenage romance. I'm surprised by that, Sorority. Two epics. Two epics. Those songs are totally different vibes, too. Not to knock you or anything, because I think that is a great song. But if you straight up ask me, like, hey, put on a Bob Seger song, it's turn the page. But I don't think there are really any wrong answers, either. I may have to put this up on Twitter and get some answers here on this. The more iconic Bob Seger song. So, as far as what we got coming up this week, Yankees, can they finally beat the Tampa Bay Rays? Can I actually do Thursday night's podcast and the Yankees, dare I say, win two out of three at Tropicana Field? I am so sick and tired of the Yankees getting whooped by this team. And now they're playing good baseball, even though they're not scoring runs. They're getting Luke Voigt back this week. Go beat the Tampa Bay Rays. Two out of three. The Mets will have a little reunion with their old pal Matt Horvey, who will be pitching in one of these two games against the Baltimore Orioles at City Field. It's going to be fun. And Matt Harvey should be cheered, by the way. I know it ended terribly with the Mets. Harvey was a good Met. He changed the culture of the team. All-star in 2013, started the game. And 2015, you don't get to the World Series without him. Matt Harvey should get a round of applause when he's on the mound later on this week. And for the Knicks, listen, Lakers Tuesday night, house money on the road trip. But the Knicks have got to find a way, I think, Get the San Antonio game and get the Charlotte game. Put yourself in a position where that game with the Boston Celtics does not mean a whole lot. And that you have that four seed locked up and you can let it rip and rock and roll. So that kind of sets the stage for what we're looking at this week. Final week of the regular season in the NBA. Harvey returning to City Field. And a rivalry renewed. Yankees playing the Rays. It seems like they've played the Rays a ton already this year. Yeah, they put him three, Yankee Stadium, three in Tampa Bay. So 
They'll be halfway done with Tampa before the middle of the month in May. Pretty crazy. Before we say goodbye, we didn't forget about him. Our pal, the red hot, the legend, Jeff Money. What up, Money? Hey, JJ. It's Jeff Money here to handicap our picks. This is going to be for Monday, May the 10th. I'm going to take the Red Sox minus the 140 over the Orioles. It'll be Perez versus Lopez. Perez 0-1 with a 2.53 ERA on the road versus Lopez 0-2 with a 9 ERA at home. As you know, the Red Sox have been dominating in Baltimore. So give me the Red Sox minus the 140. All right, JJ, I'm out of here. Let's go. Jeff Money, I hope you're wrong on that, by the way, because I, I, I don't need the Red Sox at 10 games over 500. And the Sharps, listen, they were betting the Orioles like crazy over the weekend, and they were getting smoked. Game after game after game, they're getting smoked. I'm not going to go against one of the hotter teams in all baseball, but I hope you're wrong on this one, Jeff Money. I love you, and I always root for you to profit, but I can't be rooting for you in this game. No way, no how. Well, this was a spirited show, to say the least. On Tuesday night when we come back, Todd Zeal of SNY, the former Met, is going to join us. We'll get a sense for what's going on with the team a month plus into the year. I'll have to ask him if there were any brouhaha's with teams he was on in the past. And I don't think they used rats or raccoons as a way to cover it up. We'll have reaction for the Knicks and the Lakers late night. So Pod will probably be dropping a little late. A little late. But hey, good things are worth waiting for, as they say in the business. And... I'm going to be in a good mood if the Yankees finally beat Tampa on Tuesday. I will be in a rotten mood if they lose two out of three. I'm just sick and tired of the Yankees losing the race. Enough of that theory. Enough of that narrative. Enough, enough, enough. But hope everybody out there, all the moms listening, had a great Mother's Day. I know my mom did. I treated her a brunch. I know it was not cheap. You got to take care of mom. Certain things you got to do in life, taking care of mom is one of those things. We'll leave you on that note. JJ out. Enjoy your week, everybody. Be good. Thank you.